At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about almost everything bad that Trump did this summer. Katha Pollitt has been keeping track. And we'll review the situation with Republicans in Congress who've decided not to run for re-election in 2020. 13 House Republicans have all announced their retirements in the past several weeks. They include two of the parties. 13 women, and it's only African-American lawmaker, and 10 Republicans from Texas. They're calling it the Texodus. We'll have comment and analysis from John Nichols. But first, how come Tories in Parliament are so much more willing to challenge their Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, than Republicans in Congress are willing to challenge Donald Trump? For comment, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor of The Nation. Before that, he was one of the magazine's lead correspondents covering the 2016 presidential campaign. And he's the author of the book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. Don, welcome back. Great to be back, John. Well, last week, rebels in the conservative party staged a dramatic insurrection against Prime Minister Boris Johnson. They blocked a no-deal Brexit his plan to withdraw Britain from the European Union without a deal on trade or borders. In Washington, in contrast, of course, it's hard to find more than a couple of Republicans who've stood up to Trump, even when he flouted party orthodoxy on issues like trade and tariffs or immigration or the deficit. So how big a deal is it in Britain for one party to block their own prime minister's most important initiative in Parliament. There are a couple of points to make here, John. One is that uh, your kind and generous introduction to me could have been supplemented by the fact that I also lived in Britain for the last 25 years. So when I talk about Brexit, I'm talking about something that I've seen from up close. I voted in the referendum, uh, or at least I voted by proxy because Uh, I wasn't allowed to leave the country without giving my wife my proxy so that we could cast a household of Remain votes. That was four votes in our household for Remain. But I'm not without some sympathy for the Brexiteers. We've published in the nation uh, Lord Glassman, who's a prominent left Brexiteer uh, in the House of Lords. So, you know, I think it's a complicated issue. But the short point is that, you know, America is a presidential system with a balance of powers, but where the president has enormous sway over the political fortunes of the members of his party, 
even without a formal party structure, whereas in Britain you have a parliamentary system in which the prime minister is the leader of whichever party has the most seats. So, you know, nobody voted for Boris for prime minister. People voted for Boris for party leaders, for party leader, but the people who voted for Boris for party leader were just 130,000 conservative party members. So it's a tiny electorate. Uh, and clearly the Republican Party senators have shown almost no backbone in the face of Trump's many outrages and provocations. But to be fair to them, he has a lot more power to retaliate against them when they do. You know, he can campaign against them for re-election, which is actually forbidden by the codes of both parties. If you if you're the conservative party leader and you campaign against a conservative who's running for re-election on the party line, you'd be expelled from the party. Uh, same for labor. So, you know, there's there's less scope for retaliation. Uh, but even with that, I would say that you have a, a Republican Senate uh, conference in the United States of extraordinary cowardice at the moment. So if the Republicans in Congress are spineless cowards, does that mean that the Tories, in contrast, are honorable men of principle? Mostly not, but uh, they do have a little bit more spine than their Republican counterparts. I mean, look, what happened is that there's an issue in Britain, the question of whether to remain in or leave the European Union, which actually divides both parties. So that what you had, you had to have a, a certain number of Tories rebelling against the leadership in order to handcuff them into not leaving the European Union without a deal. That's what this legislation was about and it would not have passed without some Tory votes. And in fact, a lot of Tories are against leaving the European Union because they believe, in my view correctly, that it will be bad for business, bad for British corporations, bad for British banks, and all of the traditional you know, economic interests that the Tory party has always sought to serve. So it wasn't hard to find Tories who thought Brexit was a, not just a bad idea, but a catastrophic one, and when you have a leader whose hold on power is as weak as Johnson's was, because remember, until last week, he had a majority of one. And then a week ago, the one Tory party member crossed the floor, which is the expression they used because it was literally true. He walked across the floor of the House of Commons from the Tory or conservative benches to the liberal Democrats benches and became a member of the liberal Democrat delegation, thus depriving Johnson of his majority. So you have this situation where there is parliamentary gridlock. No party commands a majority at the moment. And what would, what would have happened in the past in that case was that there would have been an election. If you can't command a parliamentary majority on a vote of confidence, then until until 2010, that would have been reason to hold an election. What happened in 2010, and this is kind of, for students of British politics, this is a kind of delectable detail, because one of the stories on the front pages of the British press this week was of Boris Johnson referring to David Cameron, his predecessor, and the man who put the Brexit referendum to the British people uh, as a girl's blouse, you know, as he wasn't, he wasn't a manly leader. And what's interesting is that Johnson's current predicament is actually Cameron's revenge because it was Cameron who sponsored the Fixed-Term Parliament Act that changed the rules of British politics so that instead of having an election whenever a leader lost a majority on a vote of confidence, 
they would serve for fixed five-year terms, and that the only way to override that is to have a two-thirds vote calling an election. Now, in recent past, whenever there had been a question of whether to have an election, leaders of oppositions tend to say, yes, of course you can have an, op an election because we're, we're going to do well because governments only call those kind of elections when they don't have a majority or when they're in trouble. But in this case, Jeremy Corbyn, despite being repeatedly goaded by Boris Johnson and accused of cowardice himself for not calling an election, refused to rise to the bait and said, of course, we'll have an election, but only after, only after we've taken no deal off the table, only after this bill which we passed has actually gained the Queen's assent and become the law of the land. The New York Times offered another reason. They said Trump was distasteful, their word, to a lot of Republicans, but he has fulfilled a lot of the traditional Republican agenda lower taxes, tax breaks for corporations and the rich, appointing lots of Republican judges, and that Boris Johnson has not fulfilled the, the Tory agenda to that degree. You think that's true? Well, I think it's true that Boris Johnson hasn't fulfilled the Tory agenda to any de degree. He hasn't won a single vote since he's been prime minister. <laughs> so his record on fulfilling an agenda is, is one of disastrous failure. As to whether Trump has delivered on the traditional Republican agenda, I guess that that depends on your views. You know, it wasn't too long ago that uh, Mitch McConnell was posing as the guardian of fiscal probity and someone who was refusing to let Barack Obama as president do anything that would increase the deficit. And the Republican Party was the party that cared more about balancing the federal budget than anything else. And of course, they've completely thrown that out the window. Uh, they've completely thrown the question of looking after veterans out the window. Uh, if they're going to campaign as the party of tax breaks for the rich, he's delivered on that agenda. And, you know, maybe that's all they actually care about. Another big difference is there's something in Britain called the Brexit Party. And I guess there's nothing the Republicans face that's anything like the Brexit Party. Is that a fair statement? Uh, yes, and it's an important factor. The Brexit Party is Nigel Farage who is, of course, beloved by Donald Trump. It's his vehicle, and he, he started it in order to put Brexit on the ballot. He succeeded in getting Brexit on the ballot. When, when Brexit passed, he announced that he was resigning, but then the party fell into a shambles, so he came back. And he's resurrected it very cannily as a kind of a, a vehicle on the right of the Tory party or to the right of the Tory party to hold the Tories to account on delivering Brexit. So... To the extent to which uh, Johnson or any Tory prime minister, Theresa May, was tempted or may have been tempted to compromise or not deliver the kind of Brexit that the right wing of the Tory party want, where they basically can uh, abrogate any kind of labor standards or social welfare net that Europe mandates, Farage is there to say, well, we'll, we'll take your voters if you're not careful. And they've They've made good on that thread, at least in the polls. They've done very well in the polls. Now, because of the first-past-the-post system in Britain, they don't have a whole lot of members of parliament, but they're definitely an electoral force that terrifies Johnson, terrified Theresa May. They're the reason that David Cameron put the question on the ballot in the first place. And in fact, in the north of Britain, they might well take votes from labor as well in industrial cities where the people voted for Brexit and which are traditional labor strongholds. So there's, there's nothing like that. There's nobody even vaguely sane to the right of the Republican Party in American politics.
it seems like the Republicans who think Trump is a a disaster prefer to retire quietly rather than challenge him openly, like the Tories did with Boris Johnson. Do you see any sign that Republicans in the United States will follow the example of their friends across the Atlantic and stiffen their spines in standing up to Trump? Well, you know, there are a couple of honorable exceptions. There's William Weld, who's running a somewhat quixotic campaign for president. There's Terry Sanford, who's uh, come back from the woods to challenge President Trump. And, of course, we mustn't forget Justin Amash, who, who did the honorable thing and resigned from the Republican Party because of what the party had become under Trump. But our system doesn't encourage such shows of courage. And, you know, Amash sadly hasn't inspired any imitators. The last person to seriously defy Donald Trump was John McCain, who gave his deathbed thumbs down to repealing Obamacare. And of course, Trump has shown that he's not only hasn't he forgiven, he's persecuting McCain even beyond the grave. Do you have any closing thoughts on this whole issue? The Republican Party today is joined at the hip to Donald Trump and his fortunes. And, you know, until now they've risen with him and we can only watch with delight when they fall with him. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Thank you, Don. Great to be here, John. Thanks. Is Trump getting worse? Are his efforts to stay in the headlines and in our heads more desperate, more demented, as he realizes his chances for re-election are not very good? For some answers, or at least some evidence, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. And she has immersed herself in a study of almost everything bad that Trump did this summer. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, this was a tough project. When you first told me you were doing it, you asked what I thought was the worst thing Trump did this summer. I said all I could remember was the worst thing he did last week. Yeah, what was it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can only remember this week right now, which is, you know, Sharpiegate, this nutty business with the hurricane headed for Alabama or not. Well, it's so true because uh, every day there is at least one new horrible thing. I I checked uh, the fact checker over at the Washington Post. As of August 12th, Trump had made, get this, 12,019 false or misleading claims. (laughs) over 928 days, Um, and it's increasing to 20 claims a day, up from the average of 13 claims. So something is going on. He is getting a little rattled or or overconfident, and he just thinks, hey, now I can say anything. Do you know what his most repeated claim is? That the wall is being built. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the fascinating thing is that most people do not believe these things including um, among strong Trump supporters, do not accept all his falsehoods is true. And strong supporters is one in six adults in their poll. So I think he he's just spreading a lot of fairy dust, like some sort of horrible Tinkerbell, some <laughs> right-wing Tinkerbell over, over us all. Um, and, and it's very hard to keep up because one day's awfulness Uh, makes you forget the one before. So that's why I did my list, lest we forget. Lest we forget. So 
let's look at your list. You published it in chronological order, and it's really too long for us to go through chronologically, but maybe you could tell us which of the things to you seem the most uh, weird and horrible. Well, weird. Weird and horrible aren't quite the same, but weird. Okay. Uh, On June 3rd, Trump called London Mayor Sadiq Khan a stone-cold loser. And in fact, over these two months, there were Uh, a lot of insults, just insults, where he said that uh, Democratic representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Ilan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib should go back to the crime-infested places from which they came. And then he can't get over them. A few days later, he says, they don't love our country. I think in some cases they hate our country. You know what? If they don't love it, tell them to leave it. This was at a a rally in Greenville, North Carolina, and uh, his remarks were met with chants of, yes, send her back. Mm. And then a few days after that, on July 27th, he went after his persistent critic, Representative Elijah Cummings, he called Baltimore, a disgusting rat and rodent infested mess where he said conditions are far worse and more dangerous than at the border. Uh (laughs) Oh, I I forgot to mention that one thing he said about the squad, those four women congressional representatives, is they hate all the Jews. Yeah. All the Jews. They hate all the Jews. But lest Jews think um, that was friendly to them, on August 20th, he said, Jews who vote for Democrats show, quote, a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. On the same day, he canceled a trip to Denmark because the not nice and nasty prime minister, and guess what sex that prime minister is, obviously a woman, right? She said, we're not selling green. Greenland to the United States. Yeah, that was a memorable one. I I do remember that one. Some of these things are just, you know, nutty and weird remarks of his own. That's a little bit different from getting thousands of people to chant, send her back, send her back about Ilhan Omar. I know. It's really terrible. Now, but besides all these verbal insults and crazinesses, Uh, He did a lot of things that were bad in a very substantive way. For example, on July 23rd, he proposed a new rule that would take food stamps away from more than 3 million people. Mm. Now, that's very serious. On August 7th, this one is interesting, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services ends protections for migrants who are here for life-saving medical treatment. And then there was a huge backlash about that, and the agency said it's reconsidering the decision. So he's not, you know, Julius Caesar yet. You know, there have been huge um, immigration raids in Mississippi. 680 workers from food processing plants were arrested by ICE. And then, uh, oh, get this, he was finally, he's finally able to defund Planned Parenthood and to prevent it from getting Title X funds for birth control and women's health care, unless it agrees to the gag rule against, you know, so much as advising women on abortion, let alone performing them. So Planned Parenthood has withdrawn, um, and it's lost $60 million. And already, as the Times has reported, it's having to close some clinic. So he's really affecting women's health in a very basic way. It's not just rhetoric. Yeah, there's really a big difference between wanting to buy Greenland and 
taking food stamps away from 3 million people or cutting off uh, Planned Parenthood from federal funding. And, uh, you know, since my column came out, he's kept on. I mean, they won't let uh, refugees from the Bahamas into America unless they have uh, complicated visas, even though if they took a plane, they could, but they're on a boat, so they can't. It's ridiculous. You had this very important fact that his false or misleading statements, according to the Washington Post, have increased to 20 a day from its previous average of 13, which does suggest either that he's getting worse and wilder and more desperate, or maybe that he's just getting more careless and free in his, uh, in his talking. What is the effect on his followers and uh, on his opponents of the huge number of false, misleading, weird, and horrible statements that he makes every day? I'm sorry to say that none of this has significantly damaged Trump's popularity in the polls. That remains just above 40%. So they don't care. I mean, the, the, the Washington Post poll showed that most, even most of his supporters don't believe everything he says. So something else is going on. Perhaps they sense, well, this is our guy. He's going to do the things we want, like get rid of immigrants and be really racist. And uh, that's good enough. Um, He's got the evangelicals who have, I think, world historically damaged their reputation for any kind of Christian virtue, but they're sticking with him. So uh, maybe he senses, look, I'm going to win on the basis of people who really love me, and what they really love is my being wild wild and crazy guy. That's an interesting possibility, which a lot of people haven't considered, that he needs to keep up or maybe even increase this feverish pace of wild statements to keep his base mobilized, that they become jaded and tired just like the rest of us. And so he has to intensify his efforts to mobilize his base. Of course, the alternative is it's just his pathetic personality, which requires constant attention no matter what. Is there any way to choose between these two possibilities? Well, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't be (laughs) be that person. But you know, it could be both. Yeah. It could be both. It could be that his devoted followers are kind of the psychological mirror of him. So when he feels he needs to ramp things up, they're also feeling, hey, he needs to ramp things up. You know, you said on this program during the campaign, before he was ever elected, you said all the things that we hate about him are the things that his base likes about him. I thought that was very perceptive. I think it's true. Um, And I think that he's really tuned into that. You know, it's very easy for people like ourselves, liberals, leftists, coastal, highly educated people, however you want to, nation readers, however you want to define (laughs) us. It's, It's very easy for us to think that people who don't agree with us are stupid but they're not. And he is not stupid. He gets has people talking about him all over the world all the time. You know, last week or the week before, the New York Times had four stories about Trump on the front page. I count myself a happy person if I go for a couple of hours without thinking about him. And I think that there are people who really like it. They don't, they don't believe he can deliver on his promises because nobody can. The economy, you know, is what it is. And they don't care. They just want to own the libs and get rid of the immigrants. 
You know, I always like to read the comments on your columns posted by readers at thenation.com. My favorite this week about this new column is a reader who writes that you should not be listing the bad things that Trump did because that won't change anybody's mind. The Democrats will not win by saying Trump said stupid things or did bad things. The Democrats can win only by talking about the good things they will do to help people with their real problems. You should be talking about health care and low wages and the high cost of college. And your approach is not the way to get elected. What do you say to that? Well, uh, I would say, first of all, I'm not running for office. <laughs> I'm writing a column. Uh, that's, those are different things. But uh, I would also say that we are very fortunate to have several Democratic candidates running in the primary who talk about health care, edu- the high cost of education, and all those other problems Americans have all the time. I mean, that's what Elizabeth Warren's campaign is. That's what Bernie Sanders' campaign is. I don't think anybody is running just on, oh, isn't Trump horrible? Katha Pollitt, her new column is titled Almost Everything Bad That Trump Did This Summer. You can read it at thenation.com. Once again, Katha, thank you for a great column. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. Thirteen House Republicans have all announced their retirements in the past several weeks. They don't want to run for re-election in 2020 when Trump will be at the top of the GOP ticket. They're a diverse group and include moderates as well as conservatives, some newcomers, some with decades of seniority. They include two of the party's 13 women and its only African-American congressman, How much can Democrats hope to gain from this development? For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and host of the Next Left podcast. John, welcome back. It's good to be with you, my friend. The New York Times reported that most of these people were not expecting to be defeated in 2020. A majority of those who have announced their retirements had safe seats in Republican districts and could easily have been reelected. So why did they throw in the towel? Well, I think that there's two factors here that are important to, to put in the mix. First off is that in a normal election, they definitely have safe seats. But there are no guarantees in any election that Donald Trump is a participant in that it will be a normal election. <laughs> okay. And so these are career politicians, by and large. They know their way around the game at least some of them are looking at the prospect that 2020 could be a wave election year, a year in which uh, people vote overwhelmingly to get rid of a president whose approval rating often dips into the 30s. Second, I think a lot of these people are just sick and tired of working in this Congress with this president and frankly with a leadership that is you know, ridiculously different to this president. The group of them, you find quite a few that there are people who actually like serving in Congress, who sort of accepted the, the traditional concepts of it. And so much of it is blown up now. And I think, frankly, quite a few of them are saying, I just don't want to do this anymore. Well, maybe the best example of that type of Republican 
who's resigning is Jim Sensenbrenner from your own state of Wisconsin. He's the second most senior member of the House. It's been his life for decades. He will have served for 42 years. Last year, he won re-election with 62% of the vote. His district starts in the Republican suburbs west of Milwaukee. What can you tell us about Jim Sensenbrenner and his decision to throw in the towel? Well, first and foremost, 62% of the vote is not not a big number for Jim Sensenbrenner. <laughs> so, you know, it's been getting closer up there. Uh, that district is, you know, one of the classic gerrymandered districts, not just in Wisconsin, but in America. Uh, this is a guy who has had a lot of power in Congress. He's older now, and, you know, at some point he probably was going to retire, but might not be retiring if, say, a Mitt Romney was president of the United States, right? Or even if, if, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was president of the United States, because in that circumstance, uh, Sensenbrenner, a, a classic man of Congress who has a little bit of an independent streak, would be kind of in his element. One of the really interesting things about him is that he has historically been the most ardent supporter of the Voting Rights Act wow. among Republicans. Wow. Yeah. He worked very, very closely with John Conyers when they were both on judiciary. Uh, for renewal of the Voting Rights Act. He has even in recent years, as other Republicans have abandoned the issue, uh, continued to be quite good on it. So he had a little bit of independence to him. Very, very conservative, very right wing, not somebody that you want to get all excited about, Um, not even like a Justin Amash type character, but not somebody who was a rubber stamp for Donald Trump. Well, the biggest group of Republicans who are resigning or retiring is from Texas. There are 10 Texas Republicans in the House who have announced their retirement since the 2016 election. We're calling it the Texodus. It's the Democrats' greatest dream to turn Texas blue. Demographically, Texas most resembles California, which, of course, is deep blue. Do you think the departure of 10 Texas Republicans from the House suggests that at least they think politics in the state is finally shifting to the left? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do think that that a lot of them are aware of it. Remember, Texas is a huge state. It was its own country for a while. And so as a result, um, it's it's got a lot of distinctions within it. And there are still going to be parts of Texas that are extremely right-wing, extremely Republican for a very long time. But the overall tenor of the state is shifting. And despite radical gerrymandering of congressional districts for a long time, the simple reality is that you have such a a growing population of Latinx peoples and uh, people of color, uh, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, uh, young people who are moving to these booming cities, and and just old school Texas liberals, of which there are always a lot. <laughs> you know, more than more than uh, some people remember, this is the state of Ann Richards and uh, Jim Hightower. The, you're seeing the uh, there's clearly something happening there. Beto O'Rourke uh, almost got elected to the U.S. Senate, and in, even in losing in 2018, you saw a big shift in congressional races across the state, uh, a very big shift in legislative races, and then down into local contests for the judiciary, um, where, for instance, in, in some of your bigger cities, you saw the election of a lot of Democrats 
a lot of African-American women uh, to judicial posts in, in the uh, Houston area. And so th- things are happening there. And I think that a number of these, again, career politician Republicans are looking at a reality uh, that is shifting. And interestingly enough, a lot of that shift is taking place in near-in suburbs. The big cities in Texas tend to be pretty democratic already. Um, The rural areas tend to be pretty Republican, except for the Latino rural areas. But in these near-in suburbs, which in Texas, a lot of congressional districts are based around, those have been Republican for a long time. They are precisely the kind of places where you see uh, a changing demographic and a changing politics. Let's talk for a minute about Will Hurd. He's from Texas. He's the only elected black Republican in the House. He's from District of San Antonio and a long part of the Mexican border. Will Hurd almost lost in 2018 to Gina Ortiz-Jones, the Democrat who's an Iraq war vet and former Air Force intelligence officer. She announced she was going to challenge him again in that period where before he announced he was pulling out, he became one of only three Texas Republicans who condemned Trump's racist tweet that demanded that the four Democratic Congresswomen of color go back to their countries of origin. But after that, Will Hurd said he was quitting. Looked to me and a lot of other people like he was he decided he was going to lose to Gina Ortiz Jones. What do you make of that race? I think that's exactly right. I think that uh, Will Hurd, who's, you know, has been more of a moderate Republican and has worked very hard to to connect with his district, put probably more effort in than than most members of Congress just saw the, the writing on the wall from the 2018 race, a presidential race, where I think there in 2020, where there will be, I think, quite a bit of attention on Texas, uh, potentially even a Texan on the ticket, raises the prospect of a shift in that district. And I think that Heard saw that coming, but also I think there's something else too. Will Heard, like Justin Amash, like a number of other uh, Republicans who are, have been kind of on the outside of the current party, the outside of the current politics, I think has grown very frustrated with, with the circumstance that he's in. And, you know, I think that his vote, for instance, on the racist tweet was sincere. You know, this is a guy who's struggling with his place in the Republican Party. The big picture of the 293 Republicans in Congress when Trump took office about a third of them are already gone because they lost re-election or just decided to leave office of their own accord, or they have now announced their retirement. A third of the Republicans in Congress, that's massive. It's certainly changing the Republican Party. What are the changes exactly? The people who do think for themselves a little bit, they're, they're maybe still very conservative. There may be people... John, that you or I might disagree with on a long list of issues, but you still find some place where you can, oh, you know, Justin Amash, you can work with him on, on a war and peace issue, as, as Barbara Lee and others have. Uh, Will Hurd, you can work with him on an education issue or uh, even an immigration issue, as, as others have. These are the people that are leaving. 
And the unfortunate reality is that in overwhelmingly Republican districts, they will probably be replaced by folks who are more aligned with the kind of the Trump vision of the party. And in swing districts, they will, that, you know, I think uh, something that a lot of listeners may think of as a much more positive result, be replaced by a Democrat. But the end result here, no matter how you analyze it, is that, you know, you're losing the people in the Republican Party who might have worked across lines of difference. And you're seeing this transformation of the Republican Party into something that is much more a reflection of Donald Trump, not a, not a conservative party in many senses, but a Trumpist party in many senses. And um, frankly, that's not good for, that's really not good for our politics. One more thing. Do you think this is the end of the exodus of Republican incumbents in Congress or will there be more? There will be more. Um, we're going into a very, very volatile year. And we, you know, punditocracy uh, of this country is already like, like want to make all kinds of predictions about 2020. Uh, there's a lot we don't know. And there's a lot of things that will become more clear as we go on. We're literally talking on the day uh, when the president's national security apparatus is, you know, crumbling around him and his secretary of commerce is in trouble for politicizing the weather. You know, I mean, <laughs> things are so upended that uh, I, I suspect that after this current session of Congress, and remember, filing deadlines to run for re-election extend well into the spring of next year. Yeah, um, I bet you'll see, I, I would be surprised if you didn't see uh, a significant number of additional Republicans decide to step down. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com and listen to the Next Left podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. John, thanks so much. Great to have you on the show. Total pleasure. Thanks for having me. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.